You're listening to episode 50. Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really, I am the number one student. So Get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals podcast where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Davis Mutawa here, your host. I am super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Brian Kurtz. Brian, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? I I am and um, thanks for having me, Davis. I, I think I said in our pre-call that I just love, not that I, I assume your audience is in and out, not just in Australia, but um, I have a lot of great friends doing marketing in Australia. And it's one of those countries where, you know, as I said, I can speak Australian. So it's a pretty good translation. That's great. Um, but I, I love, I love what's going on there. I think that there's a great entrepreneurial spirit. There's some amazing marketing going on. I know some, some of the some of the most fantastic marketers I hang around with these days are, um, are, you know, in Australia. And so very exciting time to be there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the first guys I ever um, followed and read and, and bought his stuff, uh, direct response marketer is used to be based here in Perth. And I believe he's based in the U S uh, someone called Mal Emery. So I'm not sure if you come across his. his I have heard of Mal. In fact, there's a guy, a copywriter who came to my big event, Titans of Direct Response, in 2014, and I I heard about Mal through him because he was working with him. Sounds like an amazing guy. Yeah, he's, he's a genius. Um, I need to get him on this show at one point. Anyway, um, so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being on this show, uh, for listening to us here. Brian um, started out um, in the list business, which gave him a solid foundation in learning about audiences, demographics, and database marketing. Then yeah, you might want to stop on- there because there's probably people listening. Davis, they don't even know what a list business is. I know, and I was going to ask you that, but uh- <laughs> I mean, I, I cut my teeth. You know, I started thirty or thirty-five years ago, and it was almost all direct mail in the United States. And the part of the direct mail business that I learned from was coming out of the list business. And in direct mail, lists were very different. It was a very different conversation than you'll have today when you talk about lists in the online world. You know, lists in the online world are email lists for the most part. And lists in direct mail are postal addresses. And so understanding lists in the old world of direct mail was very interesting on a couple of things. One is direct mail was an opt-out medium while online is an opt-in medium. And what I mean by that 
is that in direct mail, you know, you could send a lot of direct mail to people. And unless they told you to stop, you could keep sending it. Now, of course, if they weren't responding and they were, you know, sending you back bricks in the mail, you probably wanted to get them off your list anyway. But it, it was basically their decision, the consumer's decision to opt out. Whereas in email, as we both know, you know, everybody's got to be double opted in and spam laws and all of that. So it was a very different environment. That doesn't mean that we were spamming anybody in, in the equivalent of spam in direct mail. But understanding the list business, what that meant was that we had to be so precise in our selection because once we selected the list that we mailed, we had to pay printing and postage to reach them, which is a foreign concept to a lot of online marketers today. And so I just want to bring that up because, you know, I talk a lot in other in other interviews and when I'm on stage about how paying postage, uh, paying to the postal or, you know, I don't know what they call it. They call it the post in, in Australia. But paying postage made me a better marketer because I had to think th- through things um, and not just throw a bunch of email out there that was really inexpensive. So I, I, I didn't want you to let that go by. And people say, okay, what's the list business? And who is this Who is this joker from the U.S.? Um, I have no idea what he's talking about. And they're going to click off. And I want them to understand that what I learned in the list business, indirect mail, in the 1980s and 90s is all applicable to everything that anyone is doing online as they select lists, as they do affiliate marketing, as they do Facebook advertising. It's all relevant. Mm. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll get more into that. Now, Brian, before we dive more um, further into your story, maybe just take 30 seconds and tell us who is Brian outside of business. Outside of business, um, you know, I, I really am a serial direct marketer. So it's very hard sometimes to differentiate between my work and my play. Um, there's a great Zen Buddhist text, which I'd like to I'll just read it to you quickly. It's on my wall. The master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play, his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body, his education and his recreation, his love and his religion. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence in whatever he does, leaving others to decide whether he was working or playing. To him, he is always doing both. So I'll preface what I'm going to say by saying that, that it's not that I'm a workaholic, but what I do and how I understand direct marketing and my love for it permeates everything in my life. And in fact, one of the things that I'm going to do with my next book, I just wrote one book, which we'll talk about later, I think, but I'm going to write another book. And my, my next book is going to be called Over Delivery. That's going to be the main title. Over Delivery is not even a word. But the idea of over delivery in both your work and your personal life is really what my life is all about. And so what over delivery means to me is that in marketing, you're always giving the customer more than they ever would have wanted. You're always giving them more bonuses and more things so that they will love you for life. And then in my personal life, I'm over delivering all the time as well in, with my friends, with my you know, relatives. I'm always trying to figure out how to be a contributor, how to be generous. And you know, as far as like hobbies and things like that, I mean, you know, I umpire baseball, which is something that's a real passion for me. Uh, I think baseball is played in Australia, so it's not a totally foreign sport. Um, 
And by umpiring in baseball, I think I really honed my skills in creating order out of chaos uh, on a on a on a sports field. And I think I do the same thing in my business. So, not the not this typical answer I guess you normally get, you know, uh, you know. But I, I really do believe that that you know when your work is your play and your play is your work. It's like, it's really a fun life, you know, to, and it's not like that all the time for me. I'm not making this out to be, you know, paradise, you know, every day of the week, but it's pretty good, you know? And, and when I umpire a baseball game and I'm not thinking about my marketing work, um, in a way I'm working too. I'm, I'm working on focusing on that game and, and making, you know, being the best I can be. So, um, you know, even when I'm exercising or playing tennis or whatever, you know, I think being excellent in everything you do, which is what I said in that quote, um, is really what it's all about, I think. That's that's good. Um, and if we talk business, um, how long, I know you, you, you had a corporate career for a while there, but how long have you been in full-time business for yourself? You know, I, I did have a quote-unquote corporate career, but it wasn't so corporate. Um, I worked for a company, Boardroom Incorporated, uh, which was an entrepreneurial company uh, started by an an incredible entrepreneur by the name of Martin Edelston, who started the company in 1972. I got there in 1981, had a 34-year career working there, helping Marty build the company as his partner. Uh, He made me a partner in the business, uh, so I had an equity position. And so I never felt like I was working, quote, for the man, unquote. You know, I was always, it wasn't really that corporate. Um, It certainly was not a startup bootstrap. You know, I didn't start it from scratch. He started it. Um, But I do consider myself what I call an entrepreneur as opposed to an entrepreneur. And what that meant was once I got Marty's trust uh, and then he made me a partner, I started being an innovator myself. I became almost like a second rainmaker in the company. So I had a lot of training in 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 what I call what I would call entrepreneurship, although I didn't have to start it from scratch. So I was actually in a golden position. But of course, once you're an owner, you know the payroll matters and your costs matter. And I had all of those same headaches that a lot of entrepreneurs had. It's just that I didn't start it from scratch, and so I didn't have that headache of getting up and, and going. So to answer your question, 34 years decided after doing an epic event um, as a tribute to Marty after he passed away, I decided to leave the company. I was a partner in the business with his kids. Um, told the kids, you know, you guys can move on with this business. I'm going to move to a direct marketing educational business and take everything I've learned over the, these 34 years and now share it with with the industry. And, um, you know, by doing that, uh, so it's two years to answer your question, long winded answer. So I, it's just, it's almost exactly two years. Uh, I resigned from boardroom, you know, January 4th, 2015. And in these last two years, I've created two high level mastermind groups for, um, entrepreneurs and marketers and copywriters I've written a book. I've created some products. I'm republishing some great books from other classic direct marketers and, and copywriters. 
and I do a lot of public speaking, both nationally and in internationally in the U.S. and outside the U.S. And so um, the answer to your question is two years, but that was long-winded. Sorry. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, so, so your current business model, your core revenue streams is basically the mastermind groups and some of the products that you're marketing as well as your speaking engagements. Is that about the, the right summary? Yeah, I would say that's right. I mean, I do a lot of consulting as well. Like I'll, um, I'll do full day consulting. I have, I have clients who are on, I have on retainer who I help with different programs. Um, not crazy about that model as much because, you know, as the people listening to this know that when you're a consultant, you're getting paid for time and that's not a scalable model as a mastermind model, which you've got, you know, I've got 50 people in my two groups and now I'm teaching one to many and it's a much more uh, efficient and effective way to get my expertise out to more companies, more game changers, more entrepreneurs. Um, but I think there's a, there's still room for some, some one-on-one uh, -on -one consulting with certain companies where I think I can help them a lot. So, yeah, but yeah, most of the revenue streams are, the revenue streams are coming from the mastermind groups, the products that I sell and then consulting. Okay. For those who don't know, what, what was the core offering of, um, boardroom? Boardroom was a very simple business. It, we, we sold mostly books and newsletters uh, newsletters were sort of like magazines without advertising. And so it was all information products. Um, we sold directly to consumers. Uh, a lot of, most of the books that were the biggest sellers were in the health category for consumers, general health books on, on, on helping people with their diabetes, helping people with their heart disease, blood pressure, cholesterol, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, kitchen and home remedy type stuff, um, backed up by medical docs and, and incredible practitioners. And then we did a lot in the, in the personal finance area, investments, um, uh, consumer information. And we had a big newsletter called bottom line personal, which was probably the largest broad based consumer newsletter circulation wise in the United States. It still may be. I mean, I'm, I don't know what the circulation is now. It's probably somewhere between 300,000 and 400,000 paid subscribers. But at one point, it had over a million subscribers. And there were years at Boardroom where we sold like two and a half to three million books a year. These are big 500, 600 page books sold mostly through direct mail. We also sold on TV. I mean, it wasn't a medium we didn't like. And this is something I teach now that I think to be in one medium is so dangerous. And when I say one medium, I mean, you have a lot of people who are listening here that probably have all of their do advertising dollars tied up in one thing, whether it's Facebook, Google AdWords, email marketing, banner ads. And I think if you're in one thing, you're, you're, you're very, very vulnerable. And so I find it very important in everything I teach to teach multi-channel marketing. And so one of the secrets to the success at Boardroom is that while the products were fairly simple, books and newsletters, we sold them through direct mail, we sold them online, we sold them in email, e-newsletters, we sold them through affiliates, we sold them 
on TV, on radio, in inserts, in bank statements, in, you know, you name it, we tested it. And that to me is probably one of the most important secrets to the success of that company and the companies that I want to align with in my mastermind groups and as a consultant are companies that are willing to look at multiple channels to sell their products. In fact, I own a URL and I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the URL right now. So you better write this down. It's www.singlechannelmarketingissoboring.com. I was kidding. Don't write it down. Um, but, if you <laughs> go to single, but if you go to singlechannelmarketingissoboring.com, you actually go to my regular site, which is briankurtz.me. Um, and the reason why I bought that site and I pay whatever, you know, 25 bucks a year to own it is so I could talk about it like this in interviews like this and on stages and in my writing, because it's not just it's boring, it's dangerous. You know, single channel marketing is so dangerous.com is the one I probably should buy as well. Maybe I will actually after this call. But single, you know, single channel marketing is dangerous. You know, think of all those horror stories that you've heard about and many of the listeners might have heard about, about the company that was marketing on Facebook 100% or doing Google AdWords 100% and all of a sudden Facebook or Google shut them down and then they're out of business. Just a terrible thing. You wouldn't you wouldn't put all your money in one thing. You diversify your personal finance. Like why wouldn't you diversify your your um, media channels? So enough on that topic. But I, I I'll get off my soapbox on that. <laughs> I want to ask you. So you so you spent um, thirty four years working um, in um, this one business, the uh, boardroom with. As a, as a business partner and, and leading the, the company with the co-founder or, um, you know, the founder of that business who you joined um, later on, how, how was the transition for you to actually step away from that? And then for the last two years, um, was it as you expected? Have there been some, some big challenges or has it been better than, than you thought? Um, it's definitely been better. Um, I, I, you know, like any new business, you have challenges and it's a great question. I think the most interesting thing that's happened um, is that, so here's the negative. So the negative for me, why I kind of hinted that consulting was the piece of the business that I'm still not totally sure about, because at Boardroom, I saw everything from beginning to end. So even if I wasn't involved in every minute detail, everything was my responsibility. So for example, you know, you launch a new product, you make sure you get the creative done, you make sure you do all the media buying, you make sure the thing gets gets promoted wherever, whatever medium you're, you're going on, you make sure that the billing is in place, you make sure the renewals are in place. And so I had people who would do all that for me, and I, and I was responsible from beginning to end. As a consultant, you walk in, you give them all this advice, you try to keep your hands in it. To a, you know, to the degree where you can orchestrate everything on an ongoing basis, but it's not the same. You know, it's just not the same, and and things will fall through the cracks that would never fall through the cracks if you were you were you know one hundred percent responsible for making the stuff happen. You know, in the organization, so that's been a bit of a transition on the consulting stuff. The mastermind stuff 
God, that's been, it's been a challenge only in that I want to over deliver so much to the people in my group in terms of getting them the best guests, getting them um, just incredible information, state of the art, you know, game changing stuff for their businesses. So it's, it's not a challenge. It's just this incredible opportunity and always feeling like I'm never doing enough for them. But the transition to developing that business, the part that was not that hard was because uh, was was assembling those groups because I had spent 34 years developing relationships that were deep and not wide. I mean, I happen to know a lot of people. I happen to have a ton of people on my list and in my in my network. But that's not what I'm most proud of. What I'm most proud of is that the relationships are a mile deep, not just a mile wide. So that I knew as soon as I left boardroom and I was going to do a high-end mastermind group, I kind of knew who the 50 people I wanted to put in the group were. And I put 25 of them in by with one-on-one interviews. So that was not as difficult. It was time-consuming, but it wasn't as difficult because I had played such a long game my whole life in terms of developing very deep relationships and people knowing that I was very much into over-delivering for them and doing a lot. The second mastermind group, which is more for up-and-comers, that's taken a little longer to develop because now I'm getting known by people who were not part of my network, but they knew about me. And it's been really flattering and very humbling to know that there were a lot of people following my career who I didn't know, who now are on my list, who are now, you know, kind of want to be part of my world. And so I had to develop a group for them as well. So that kind of like appeared, like it wasn't like I had to plan when I left boardroom that I was going to do two mastermind groups. But the second mastermind group just appeared to me as like a vision almost that I better have a second group for these up and comers who've been following me and now realize they could be part of something with me and I could help them in a much bigger way. So the answer to your question is it, the consulting piece was definitely more challenging and still is than I thought it would be. Um, and especially establishing a, a consulting clients that want to stay around and, you know, not just pay me, but be, make me a, a true partner in their business so I could really do the kind of great work that I did at Boardroom. Um, but on the other stuff, on the mastermind and getting the book going and all of that and writing my blogs and, you know, creating product like, you know, these great books I'm going to publish and my Titans stuff, which is our, my, my um, products and swipe files from stuff that I did for my live events. Um, that, that hasn't been that hard. You know, that I kind of knew how to, how to market products. I'm just marketing them more B2B than I was instead of be, you know, business to business, you know, to other businesses and entrepreneurs rather than business to consumer. But the concepts of direct marketing are all the same. So, um, it was not that tough a transition. I mean, yeah, understanding that I had to hire an assistant and, you know, doing all those things, but it was, uh, surprisingly, that stuff was not that difficult for me. Right. You talk about um, on, um, <clears throat> on your landing page on your website um, how you managed to grow a massive list, um, I think, before the internet or without the internet. 
and you, you've done a, a, a recording on that, um, which is one of your lead magnets, right? Um, could you share maybe one secret from that video for somebody who is um, starting out and they don't have a list? Um, what are you teaching today for people like that? Yeah, I mean, they should listen to that interview. So if they opt into my list, that's an easy opt-in. And I don't sell a lot of stuff to my list. I just give away a lot of content. And there's a lot of free content on that site about all of that. But if I had to say a couple of things, I mean, you know, it's all about playing a long game. You know, the idea that, you know, you're immediately going to jump into business by selling somebody on the first email, you know, you don't, you don't marry somebody on the first date. And so the biggest thing I could teach, and again, I had 34 years to learn it, is, and, and even in direct mail where you can't give away a lot for free because it's so expensive to do direct mail versus email, but I'll maintain that when you're building a list in email and you double opt-in people, you know, develop a relationship with them first, you know, give them a lot of free content. Um, I mean, this is something that I'm not the only one teaching this, of course, but the idea of over-delivering on your, on your message, your content, your mission, your vision, without figuring out how to monetize it right away is okay. And if you try to monetize it too quickly, and then you don't have anything else to give them after you sell that first product, you don't really have a business, you have a product. And a product is not a business. A promotion is not a business. You know, a winning promotion, a winning sales letter, a winning anything is not a business. But, you know, if you can go beyond one product to two, three, four, and give away a lot of free content, now you're starting to talk about having a business. If you have a winning promotion and then you have three other sales letters for different products, now you're going from having a promotion to having a business. And I think you would learn if you listen to that whole interview and a lot of my other interviews on my site, that's something that comes up again and again, almost like I'm on reruns, like just as I am right now during this interview, but I can't emphasize it enough. And too many young entrepreneurs, you know, need to make money too quickly and it, it becomes counterproductive to try to cash in so fast that you really don't do what you need to do in terms of relationship building. Mm. And how, you, you saw that play out in the 34 years at Boardroom where you started out with probably just one or two products and then they were eclipsed by other products that maybe were not even in, in the offering at the beginning. Can you share one story from that time? A story about specifically what? I think I heard you talk about how, um, is it the health and, and wellness product that you guys started to, or the line that you started to do that um, became much bigger than, than any of the other lines that you were doing? Yeah, yeah I think that there's, yeah, there's, a, there's a, great, a great quote. I'll get it wrong in terms of the exact words, but it's Wayne Gretzky, the great hockey player. And he always said, you know, you go to where the puck's going to be, not where the puck is. And so, and you also kind of let the, you kind of let the, sometimes you have to let the audience tell you what they want. And so what happened was, you know, we had this broad-based newsletter called Bottom Line Personal. We had another newsletter called Boardroom Reports, which was more business. We had another newsletter. And, and all of a sudden we found that in Bottom Line Personal, the health information that we were supplying, which was like one of the sections was getting the most 
response from our audience. They were writing the most letters to us about it. They were telling us the most that this was the most interesting material that they wanted to learn about. And um, so I, I think that there was um, an indication that there was a lot more interest in health than there might be even in personal finance, where we spent a lot more of the editorial in the newsletter. This is like, we'll call it, you know, early 1980s, mid 1980s. We spent more time maybe in the personal finance area than we did in the health area. And so I, we, we launched a health newsletter called Health Confidential, and it struggled, and we couldn't get it off the ground, and we couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And I remember it was really about, you know, this is a great quote from my book, you know, Gary Halbert, the great copywriter said, you know, every business can be changed with a great sales letter. You know, every business problem can be solved with a great sales letter. And what that meant to me was that we all we needed was the right messaging to, to our audience about this health newsletter. And the idea of health confidential was not the correct positioning. And when we moved the whole branding to bottom line health, remember bottom line personal was the flagship, bottom line health became this incredible, incredibly successful health newsletter. And then everything we spin, spun off in the book area in health was not boardroom books. It was bottom line books or bottom line health books. And all of a sudden, we realized that we fell into this entire new brand that under this umbrella, we could do great direct marketing and people would trust the brand because it was under the bottom line brand, but it was the health division. And then we started doing great research to the audience about the health topics that were of most interest to them. And that's how we kept launching amazing health books, by surveying them and finding out that they wanted books on um, home remedies and they wanted books on, you know, health tips from great doctors, like great medical teams that we could assemble. And frankly, we didn't even have to survey to do one of the most successful books we ever did on diabetes because we understood that there was a epidemic and there still is in diabetes and uh, uh, there's an epidemic of diabetes and pre-diabetes in the United States anyway. And the idea that we could create a book that outlined a diabetes program for health and exercise that would just blow out to where we sold hundreds of thousands of copies of that book under the bottom line umbrella. And then that was sort of the, you know, the end, not the end, but that was sort of like, you know, on that trajectory of how we became more of a health publisher than we did a general consumer interest or financial publisher. So that's a quick, uh, a quick summary of how we got there. I have a lot of stuff on my site. Uh, in fact, I did a, I've done a bunch of blog posts about this. Um, I think there was one, uh, that I called branding without getting hives, because uh, branding gives me hives, because that doesn't sound like it's direct marketing. But this kind of branding of using the bottom line brand in a direct marketing environment was what that was about. And then I did another blog post about books are still a perfect product, and that talked about um, how we selected books off the bookshelf at bookstores and made them into direct mail successes and direct marketing successes 
when they were collecting dust on the shelf at the bookstores. And that's an interesting story in itself as well. That sounds very interesting. So, so what, what's intriguing, and, and, and I, know, I know a little bit about direct response marketing, but um, what, what makes it different from just standard marketing? It's all about measurability. I mean, you know, to, to do advertising and not know how it's doing, to me, is just crazy. Um, and so I think it's, it's all about measurability. It's all about getting a return on investment on all of your advertising. Even if you don't make your money back on the first sale, you make it back on the second or third sale and you track all of that. Direct response marketing implies, and it's not just direct mail. I mean, people think direct marketing is direct mail. It's not. Direct marketing is a science of marketing. It's a subgroup of marketing that talks about everything is measurable. Everything is accountable. And that things that aren't accountable or measurable are kind of like not part of the mix. And so even if you run a space ad somewhere or a TV ad, you need to figure out, you know, how that ad is performing, whether it's through a website or through an an 800 or toll-free number or through a response device. And so that's the quick down and dirty uh, definition. But it's also tied into a major concept called lifetime value, that you have to make sure that whatever you're spending on that media on the first sale, you have a a plan in place to say, okay, if I don't make my money back on the first sale and I want to make money back by a second sale, that you have a second product in place, a second promotion in place, which I talked about already. And now you have a business, a direct marketing business. There's one rule of thumb in direct marketing. It comes out of one of the great classic books of direct marketing of all time. And it's basically no direct marketing business can survive without repeat business. Sounds really like a simplistic comment that everybody should know, but it's the core premise of direct marketing. You don't want to be a one trick pony or a one hit wonder. You want to have multiple products with multiple media, which again, I've talked about already. Mm. Which, which kind of brings me to how your, your current structure is. So you, you've got a, mastermind group or two mastermind groups which is essentially a subscription um repetitive um forget the recurring model um why that model and how is that working for you and what how do you teach your students who are trying to go into info marketing around what model they should select can you repeat that i'm sorry i didn't i i'm i'm I'm, I'm a little slow today i went to the gym and my head is like they put me on the stairmaster, so I'm a little thick. Just repeat that question again. Sorry. Uh, currently, your, your current business model is using a mastermind group, which is giving you that right. recurring model. Um, why that model, and how? What? What? What's your preference when you're teaching your students when they're creating an information marketing uh, business? Yeah, no, it's it's always about repeat business. So, you know, that's why I said I was frustrated with the consulting model because. It's like, you know, getting paid for time. And and I try to do with all my clients, how can you get paid less for time and more for your real expertise? And there are multiple ways to do that. It doesn't have to be a mastermind, but certainly putting your thinking into a course, which I haven't done yet, um, and I do want to do that. Um, But the idea of having a course that people can buy and then you can have coaching within that course and monthly webinars. So the idea of someone buying a course for $1,000 or $2,000 and subscribing 
to a membership where you coach them every month. I love that model. And what's a member? What's a mastermind beyond really a, a very high price membership? So when I when I formulated my mastermind and I do coach people on developing their own version of a mastermind is that it wasn't just the live meetings for the mastermind and one group I meet twice a year live and the other group I meet three times a year live, but it's what we do in between the meetings. So it's the private Facebook group where people can share ideas and resources. It's office hours. I give people office hours so they can spend some time with me one-on-one so I can make sure they're getting the most value out of the group. I put all of the content from the events into a portal so they can access videos of the best content and best material. And then I also add other material. Like if I find a great speech from somebody, I get their permission. Can I put this in the private portal for my mastermind group so I can give them all this extra content? So the model is great because you know they're paying me for the year. I'm delivering over a year. My goal is to get them to renew after a year. And you got to over deliver. And so I... It, there are, there are so many versions of that model. I mean, subscribing to a magazine is another version of that model, if you think about it, right? How can I deliver a great magazine to you over 12 months or are you going to renew for another 12 months? And so how can I give you a book that I can give you the second edition of that book nine months from now and that you're going to automatically want that delivered to you? I mean, all of these things are part of a model. and I, So when I'm coaching people on it, I try to get a sense of what their assets are, like what they own in terms of lists, content, whatever. And then we kind of formulate what they could put together. And in a lot of cases, it could be a mastermind group, could be a coaching group, could be a monthly webinar group, could be a membership where you deliver something weekly every month. It could be, you know, a live event that goes into something. It could be a course. Um, with with coaching and training. So all sorts of models, but those are all continuity models. Continuity meaning I'm going to get ongoing revenue. And I try to I try to get people to get out of the game of, you know, selling a product or selling a one-time event and then not creating any continuity in it. Hmm. Before, before I shift to a couple of different questions, I wanted to ask you, because you I think you've done um, quite a number of interviews. Where do you see podcasting, and how would you um, differentiate it if you were if you were to start a podcast? How would you <clears throat> grow it um, from from your perspective as a marketer? You know, I'm, I've got a lot of offers to do a podcast. I don't think I want the commitment at the moment. Um, I think I'm a good interviewer. I've done a lot of interviews of people in my mastermind groups and on stage at events. So I'm. I'm confident. I think you got to be a great interviewer. You got to use what my mentor Jay Abraham calls the Socratic method. You really have to ask probing questions. You need to pull out what's in someone's mind that they weren't even expecting to share on that interview. And that's a talent. And I think it's a talent that I have. Um, But I got to go the other way. I mean, I love being a guest on podcasts like this because I can think about my ideas. I can flesh things out. In fact, you know, as we were talking, I thought of a, an idea for a blog post that I haven't done yet, um, which is that idea of that I mentioned already on this call about letting the market come to you. Like sometimes you don't know that there's a market out there that you're reaching, but you weren't intending to reach them. And 
you know, you got to then let that come to you and then figure out how I might exploit that further, exploit being a positive word, not a negative word. Um, so, but a podcast is a great way to build an audience. So I'm not, I'm not an expert in that. I know people who are, um, in terms of using a podcast to build their initial business. I got to tell you, my list has been built. Uh, the people that follow me now have been built by people who either listened to an interview from me, saw me on stage. You know, if they weren't sick of me after listening to this, for example, that they might want to hear more from me, that's somebody I want in my tribe. That's great. Okay, fantastic. That's a great answer. I want to shift now quickly, and, um, you know, we're probably going to come into the top of the hour soon. So, um, when we talk about fear of failure, did that ever hold you back from, from sort of stepping away from boardroom and starting what you've started now over the last two years? Um, no, fear of failure never stopped me. Um, um, I, I'm very conscious all the time that, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a house, unfortunately, that um, it was sort of like, you know, parents from the depression and like, don't, you know, don't get too, don't get too happy too quickly because bad news could be right around the corner. So there was a little bit gloom and doom. So I, I often say, you know, paranoia is not a psychosis, it's survival, but that doesn't mean you have to be pessimistic or negative or, you know, dire and all that kind of bad stuff. So I think that there's an opportunity to stay optimistic, but still be constructively paranoid. And that keeps you sharp. So I don't have a fear of failure. I do have a fear of not delivering what I promise. Like that's something that really keeps me up at night. Like if I think that I didn't do the best I could do, or I didn't deliver at the highest level, that is very disturbing to me. So I have a fear of that, not a fear of failure. And then when I have a fear of that, it's like, okay, I didn't deliver at the highest level. I didn't deliver excellence. How do I now turn that around, deliver excellence, you know, and, and make, you know, make a big change. And so that's kind of my mindset on that. But no, I never, you know, I know they're going to be failures. Like I know I'm going to fall on my face. Um, and I have a great friend who's a, who's a world champion dog trainer, uh, dog agility expert. And, you know, she's won Olympic level medals in dog training. And she's also lost a lot, obviously, you know, as Michael Jordan, the great basketball player says, you know, you, you don't make any of the shots that you take and miss. Right. So you got to take a lot of shots to make you. You got to to make a lot of shots. You got to take a lot of shots, and so that's one rule of thumb I follow. And the other one from from Susan Garrett, the dog trainer, she says everything, everything in business, everything you do, you don't win or lose. You either win or you learn. You win or you learn, and so that's something that has become a major premise for me. I got that from her, and then I got from Michael Jordan. You know, just keep taking a lot of shots. You know, my my. Uh, entrepreneur coach, um, Dan Sullivan, also, when I went out on my own, said to me, Brian, 
Every, and he said for two years, as a matter of fact, and I'm two years out, but he said for the first two years, everything you do is a pilot. Everything you do is a pilot. So it's like if you look at it as a pilot program, if the mastermind something you hate after a year, you get rid of it. If you write a book and you hated it, you won't write another book for a while. If you, you know, create a course and then you hate servicing the course with a, with a coaching program, you won't do that again. So when you look at everything as a pilot, you can get in and out pretty quickly. Now, you know, you do make certain commitments to people and you got to fulfill on your commitments, which then gets kind of dicey. But I learned that in, in, in the business at Boardroom. You know, there's something in, in, the, in the subscription business. It's called subscription liability. So think about it. If you subscribe to my magazine or my newsletter today and you pay me, let's say you pay me, you know, $50 to subscribe to my newsletter today and it's a one-year subscription and you paid me for it, did I earn that money yet? The answer is no. And so I have to earn that money over 12 months so that from an accounting standpoint, I don't earn that money. That money is earned as it's actually on my books from an accounting standpoint is what they call a subscription liability. And I'm earning that month by month after you prepaid me. And with that mentality, you can't lose, right? Because you're always looking to deliver every month. I mean, that's the, the mindset of anybody who has a membership program. You know, you have to always think about how I'm going to get these people to pay me every single month and feel like when they see that charge on their credit card, that it's worth paying. So that's the mindset. That is the mindset. And, and I think with that mindset, I don't have a fear of failure. I have a fear that I'm under delivering, which is just as bad maybe, but it's not about, again, it's not about winning and losing. Failure implies that you're going to lose and I'm not going to lose. I may have to learn a tough lesson, but I ain't going to lose. I know that. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I love that answer. Now, give me a quick look into what a day in your life um, looked like two years ago when you just launched your new business versus what it looks like today. That's a great question. I mean, I've done a lot of little – I mean, I'm not good at, at creating free days like what Dan Sullivan, my entrepreneur coach, calls free days where you just sort of like not do anything regarding work because I think I'm so embedded. Remember, I, we started this conversation, you know, with the whole work is my play. But you got you to gotta turn off. So when I started, it was basically, you know, seven days a week. I wasn't 24-7, but I was thinking and breathing the business almost all the time. It was very hard to find free time. It was – I was carving out pieces for free time. And now it's different. Now – I, uh, my assistant knows that she makes no appointments for me on Mondays. She makes no appointments for me on Fridays and she makes no appointments for me on Wednesday mornings. And the reason for those three is that I want, I want time for creative thinking. It doesn't mean I'm still not where I want to be, but just that I don't make appointments for the most part on Mondays, Fridays, and Wednesday mornings is now saying I've got time after I get through Thursday night, between Friday morning and Monday night, that's like creative time, and it includes the weekend. Because I think when your mind, when your brain is working in a creative mode, 
it's way different than when you're responding to emails, doing coaching calls, doing consulting calls, talking to people in my mastermind. And when you want to write and be creative, like when I want to write my blog, when I want to write my next book, and when I wrote this first book, um, different heads, you're using a different part of your brain. So I want to make sure I've got the time carved out for that because I love doing that part. So I didn't have that at the beginning. I have that now. And the Wednesday morning was a, a guarantee that I would go to my personal trainer for a workout every Wednesday morning. And I still have to work in more exercise. I'm, I'm pretty good at, you know, I play tennis and I'm not, I'm not a sloth, you know, I'm not, I'm not, and I, and I eat pretty well, but, um, I need to work in exercise. I haven't worked in exercise into the Monday and Friday yet, although I play tennis on Monday nights, which is a nice way to end that that period of you know Friday morning to Monday night of the creative mindset. So I'm not there yet in terms of being completely productive on Mondays and Fridays and with my with my creative. I am better on the on the personal trainer on Wednesday morning. But that's kind of a big switch in the routine of just sort of like letting my schedule dictate me as opposed to me creating the schedule. Now, what happens is, as you might imagine, Tuesdays and Thursdays are freaking crazy and Wednesday afternoons are, are more crazy. Like I'll do Thursday now. I do my office hours for my mastermind group on, on a Thursday once a month, maybe twice a month. And I think last Thursday, I think I had phone calls every hour between 8 o'clock a.m. and 6 p.m. So I guess that was 9 or 10 calls um, back to back to back to back to back. And it was good. It was exhausting. But then I knew that, you know, I could exhale at the end of that. And, you know, Friday was my open day. So, yeah, it, you know, I'm tr I'm being trying to be more strategic with those chunks of time for creativity. That's the biggest okay. switch. That's great. I love the answer. Now I'm going to challenge you. Just take a quick minute. Tell me why you invest in mentors. I know you've talked about Dan Sullivan. Why do you still invest in people like that? Oh God, it's like that's the easiest question. It's like it's it's not it's not an investment and it's not a cost. It's it's a it's a it's a must. I did a I did a video blog post and I called it your you don't choose your mentors your mentors choose you and it's a 5 minute video which I encourage everybody listening to go watch it I can give you the where how to go get that but um and what I said in that video basically is like my mentors were all created by my own sense of contribution and what I mean by that is that I found the people I wanted to follow. I found the people I wanted to learn from. And the first thing I did is figure out how I could help them. And in the two of my major mentors that I talk about in that video, Dick Benson, who's a, one of the fathers of direct mail and Gene Schwartz, who's one of the most amazing copywriters and businessmen I've ever met in my life. Renaissance man. And in both cases, they needed help with lists. Remember we started this thing about me being a list guy. And when I helped them with their businesses and their lists, I didn't ask them to be, I didn't say, oh, now you got to be my mentor, Dick. Now you have to be my mentor, Gene. Didn't work that way. They just wanted to be my mentor. They said, this guy's got some, got some chops. This guy contributed to me. 
And if they didn't want to be my mentor, they didn't want to contribute to me, so be it. You know, I wasn't asking them. It wasn't a quid pro quo. It wasn't if I do for you, you do for me. There's a great book I highly recommend. It's called Give and Take by Adam Grant. And he talks in that book about everybody's either a giver, a taker, or a matcher. And, you know, the interesting thing in that book, at the beginning, he talks about, and this is all about finding your mentors. You know, he said, the people who are the least successful as entrepreneurs and business people, guess what they are? Givers, takers, or matchers. So, of course, you know, you would probably answer the question in the obvious way. You'd say they're takers. Maybe they're matchers. A matcher is everything's got to be 50-50. If I do for you, you do for me. And obviously the answer is the least successful people were all givers. And you say, what? What's this book going to be about? But then Grant goes on to talk about that if you give the wrong way and you just give, 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 and you don't look for opportunities, even if it's not about quid pro quo, you're going to be a chump. You know, people are going to take advantage of you. So there is a, a, a stylistic way of giving, because then he said the people who are the most successful are also givers, but they give strategically. They give to people that might help them. And then if a few of them do, all of a sudden you've got this group of mentors that are off the, off the charts. And, you know, takers and matchers, not, not the game you want to play. And so, I, I mean, I've written about this a lot and it'll be in my new book. But, now, talking, talking about books, um, um, talk to me about your book and where can we find that book? Yeah, I highly recommend my new book. It's like really cheap. I don't make any money on it. So now that I've kind of downplayed it, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's called The Advertising Solution. Don't go to Amazon and just buy it. You can find it there. But buy it on a site that I set up called thelegendsbook.com. Thelegendsbook.com. And if you go to thelegendsbook.com, you will see that there are all of these incredible bonuses that I set up where the book is about six of the greatest legends of direct marketing ever and what we can learn from the eternal truths that they pioneered and how they're all applicable today. And then what I did on this site is like, okay, go buy the book now. I give you a button on the site. You can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books. Go buy the book. Um um, come back to this site with the receipt for the book, go to this email address with the receipt and, and you can opt in to my list and download all of these free bonuses, which are the best ads these six legends ever wrote. And these six legends, if anybody's ever heard of them, I hope so. David Ogilvy, John Caples, Robert Collier, Claude Hopkins, Gary Halbert, and Gene Schwartz. These six, I call them the dead madmen are the most important pioneers of marketing ever. And so you get their best ads in this swipe file that you get for free. You get videos of the th of three of them, which are fantastic. And then you also get a downloadable PDF of the book Scientific Advertising by Claude Hopkins, which is an incredibly important read for anybody in not just marketing, but just entrepreneurs, anybody because this was written in 1923 and Claude Hopkins understood that you needed a return on your, on your advertising even back then, even though direct marketing wasn't even invented then. And so you get a downloadable PDF of scientific advertising, an illustrated annotated version that's so accessible and so easy to read. 
Plus, there are some other special reports from the Legends there by my co-author, Craig Simpson. So you go to thelegendsbook.com. You go buy the book for like 12 bucks on Amazon, The Advertising Solution. Come back to this site. Get all of these bonuses. It'll be the best 12 bucks you ever spent in your life. And again, I make nothing on the 12 bucks. Um, why, am, why do I give all this? Because you have to opt into my list um, when you go get all those freebies. And then you get my blogs, the stuff I've been talking about on this interview. And if you don't want to buy the book, which is crazy, um, and you want to just opt into my list and go get that interview that you mentioned earlier about building 9 million names without the internet, just go to briankurtz.me, B-R-I-A-N-K-U-R-T-Z.me, and you can go there and just, you know, opt into my list. Um, you know, you'll get to my blog page eventually. You'll see all my past blogs, my past writing, and I talk about a lot of the concepts we talked about today. Amazing. And we're going to link that up all in the show notes. And thanks for, thanks for providing that um, information generously. Brian, uh, we'll come to, to the top of the show. So before I ask my last question, um, I just want to thank you for you know, putting time aside. This is um, you know, uh, a busy time for you. So thank you for really coming on this show and sharing your story with the Business General's family um, and for everything you're doing in the marketplace. All those um, decades you've spent in you know, indirect marketing, now you're teaching that out to new generation, to people who are trying to step out of the corporate world or just trying to scale their businesses. So really appreciate your time. Um, and now, Brian, for the last question, um, when all is said and done, do you think about legacy? And if you do, what legacy do you want to leave and be remembered for and tell us why? Yeah, I do think about it. Um, I think that I have mentors now who are the ones who are still alive uh, are, are basically um, – not just encouraging me, I mean, they're almost beating me up to say, look, there's very few people who grew up in direct marketing in the 1980s and 90s before the internet who are willing to share the knowledge of the greats of marketing back then and share my experiences, my stories of direct marketing and how they all apply to everything we do today. And so the legacy is like being this bridge. Like I want to be remembered as this bridge that connected like all of this great material from the past that was all eternal truths of direct marketing, connected them to where I was working in the later years of my career, and then were being used by future marketers and everything they were doing that was state of the art. And so if I could leave that mark, um, that would be really powerful for me. Um, I do want to make sure I write my next book, this over delivery book, um, which will be much more about my own personal stories. Although I do have personal stories in the, in the other book at the legendsbook.com, the advertising solution. Um, but the other book, then the book I'm going to write next is going to be all about my stories. And as Robert Cialdini, the, the author of Influence, one of the most important books ever written, not just for marketers, just for anybody in business, um, he said recently to me, I met him, and he said, No one can argue your stories. Like, no one can argue your story. They can argue your opinion, they can argue your supposition, they can argue your analogies, they can argue all kinds of stuff when you say it. But if you've got a story around it, 
They can't argue with it. And if the story has a lesson, and I had some in this interview today, um, you know, I tried to put it in the context of how we got to bottom line health from bottom line personal. You can't argue with my story. That's what happened. And whether you can apply that or not, that's up to you. But if you have a brand and, and you put a second product and you don't put it under the, the same umbrella, shame on you for not testing that based on the story I told you. But you don't have to. Um, it's a test and you don't have to test it. But I want to be known as the person that had stories that people could take and apply. So that's, I think, the legacy. Um, and and I want to be remembered for that. I want to be remembered as sort of like, a, you know, one of the greats of direct marketing, but not from an ego standpoint, because ego, you know, the guys with the biggest egos in the cemetery who gives a shit, right? Or the guys with the most money in the cemetery who gives a shit. But um, I think the guy in the cemetery who was, it's constantly being quoted, constantly being, you know, used in terms of what they taught, that's that's worthwhile, it seems to me, especially if my spirit's floating around somewhere. That would give me a lot of satisfaction. Thank you for sharing that, Brian. Um, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for hanging out with me and Brian today. My prayer is that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to live out your dreams. Head on over to businessgenerals.com for all the show notes. Type in Brian and all the show notes will come up. And to reach out to Brian, that's briankurtz.com. And check out um, thelegendsbook.com to grab that copy of your book. Brian, thank you so much for being on the Business Generals podcast today, for sharing your story with us. Absolutely grateful you are a true business general. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Hey, what's up, Business Generals family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Generals podcast. Connect with me at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.